Hello and welcome to Handel Hendricks Unlocked, a podcast from Handel Hendricks in London, in partnership with Art Fund. This is the first in a series of podcasts in which we talk to well-known faces, all of which have a connection to our museum. In our first five podcasts, we talk to people who all share a connection with 60s rock icon, Jimi Hendrix. Jimi lived at 23 Brook Street, Mayfair, in a flat which now, along with the Hendrix exhibition and a collection of his records, forms the Hendrix half of our museum. George Friedrich Handel, 18th century Baroque composer extraordinaire, lived at 25 Brook Street, and his Georgian townhouse makes up the other half of our museum, the Handel half. So there you go, that's what Handel Hendrix is all about. So let's crack on with our first episode. A few months back, we had the pleasure of talking with the talented and always funny comedian Nish Kumar. We spoke to him about everything from his first gig to a moment of inspiration at a museum in Sheffield. So here it is, our conversation with Nish Kumar, recorded in Jimmy's flat. Welcome to the Handel and Hendrix podcast. We're here with Mr. Nish Kumar. Hello. Very happy to be here. Very excited <laughs> to be here, actually. Very yeah. excited indeed. And you've not been to the museum before, have you? No, this is my first time, no, nice. yeah. Can you give us your sort of first impressions? What do you think? Well, I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it? Like, what a strange sort of cosmic coincidence mm. that you'd have two sort of quite different musical icons living in the same place. I can't imagine there's any, like, another building like this in the world that you could think of where you can... Where we definitely 100% know and can specifically trace the fact that yeah. two people of that, uh, who are held in that sort of stature, both lived. And it's, um, it's great. It's a sort of such an interesting time capsule to go through all the handle stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then fast forward 200 years <laughs> uh, into, um, into Jimi Hendrix's bedroom, which we're currently sat in. Can you, so- can you tell us what's going on in the bedroom? What's going on in the bedroom is like it's strange because I have I have I've seen photos of this room, yeah, and so it's very strange to actually see it in uh, in person. It's quite a small room, yeah. Um, it's not huge, you know. It's not it's not huge, but I mean, so there's sort of these um, you know these kind of pattern fabrics on the wall and the cushions. The eye is inevitably drawn to the records. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. the uh, the record collection that you guys have assembled, and I've already been told that under no circumstances am I allowed to have any of these. <laughs> That's been made. I actually didn't even request it. Yeah. I you both. I, I thought it needed to be said. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Pretty saw early the way on <laughs> that I was eyeing up <laughs> Richie Havens' mixed bag <laughs> and the Dylan bring it all back home, yeah. and you're like, no, I think I feel like you might be the sort of person that has. Assumed that they might yeah. be able to take something home with them, and <laughs> I just want to make it clear. Rules. I just, yeah. yeah, I just want to make it clear. We're very happy you're here. Don't take anything. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, like the the size of the record collection and the speakers. Yeah, tells, it tells you a lot about him. Yeah, I, I mean, it tells you a lot about his priorities given the yeah. size of the room, yeah. how big the record player and speaker <laughs> setup is. It's this was um, this was the man who was immediately like working out. <laughs> Yeah. When he stepped when he set foot into a new place of residence, this <laughs> yeah. is a man who was like immediately working out where am I going to put my stereo? Yeah, definitely. And he was, you know, he was playing these like absolute full volume. Yeah, and, like bra- <laughs> he was breaking them fairly regularly <laughs> and having to go get them repaired. So yeah. I I always think it's like maybe more than 
anyone I can think of off the top of my head, I associate Jimi Hendrix in terms of my favourite musicians with photographs of him amongst his record collection. Yeah. And I really associate him. We were just talking before we started recording about this photograph of him in his previous London flat with the, uh, where he sort of sat amongst the records and he's mm. got, you can very visibly see uh, Blonde on Blonde and um, the uh, Lenny Bruce album yeah. um, in amongst his collection. And um, it's just always, always sort of gratifying when you think about how the breadth of his taste in music is so interesting. And, um, and I remember something like when he was told that Handel lived here, he was immediately like, oh, give me some records and was, yeah. it was keen to kind of investigate that sound. And you sort of, um, you sort of forget because he's, he assimilated it all into his work. It's only when you think about it for a moment and you consider the records that he made, the kind of breadth of styles that everything that yeah. gets taken into those albums. Definitely. And yeah, yeah. He walked down to HMV and went and got, you know, got Messiah. Yeah, right. Was like, because he was he was interested to know what yeah. it was like, and the, the, the it's just uh, yeah it's just such an interesting. He he seemed like a somebody who was he was a real fanboy of of music. Yeah, I think yeah. like before that term really existed. Yeah, definitely. And even if he wasn't, I think if he wasn't a you know massive star, he still would have been absolutely obsessed with music. Yeah, for like, sure, definitely. But I think also like there's so many photos of him because he was really like he just let people into his private space yeah like, and, all, all the time and also um uh, photographers loved him I, I remember yeah i can't remember which photographer it was was saying that he um he had a lovely big head that's i, I really remember <laughs> that quote specifically this photographer was trying to explain why he why certain people are, are photogenic and he was trying to explain that Jimi hendrix has sort of had quite a slender body yeah. And then a massive head. <laughs> and apparently that shape is something that photographers like are really looking for. And I all for some reason I always remember that about this photographer's going, he had a lovely big head. <laughs> um, yeah, and he um yeah, and he seems like somebody that just sort of operated a very open door existence. Yeah, definitely. And he had like, you know, he'd just give his phone number out all the time. Yeah. So they ended up having to get two phones. Oh really? And then he just gave the number and then he just gave the number out to the other phone. So it's just like constantly ringing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I imagine it was possibly he was a tricky man to live with. I saw some footage yeah. of um the studio when they were recording Electric Ladyland in uh i think i think it's a record plant in new york i think but it's full just full of people and it, it was on an old documentary about electric ladyland one of the classic album series and it, it, the the interview the subject the in person being interviewed was Chaz chandler and was talking about how it just did his head in and it was sort yeah. of around the time that their relationship was really fraying um but you can there's little bits of like super eight footage of them in the studio yeah and it, it, I mean, it's insane. There's just people everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you, how did you first get into music? I suppose. What I mean, was I, there was always music playing in my house when I was growing up. Like my family are very sort of into music. Um, yeah. I think um, there was a lot of, um, 
there was a lot of Bollywood music playing when we were growing up. Um, nice. And um, there's an album that Riz Ahmed did in his sort of other life as a rapper in as part of the Sweatshop Boys group. Um, there's an album that they did, which sort of um, it's called Kashmir and it's like a hip hop album, but they used lots of like Bollywood samples and sounds from that sort of 60s, 70s, early 80s era. And it's really it's a really interesting thing to listen to because it sounds it feels like the sound of my childhood, oh, like wow. the sound of the music that was playing in, in the kitchen in my parents' house. Um, my cousins were sort of were were Hendrix and Prince fans, but I the t- the the first time I remember distinctly hearing it was when I was fourteen. We went on a, f- a school trip to Sheffield, <laughs> which even as I'm of saying course. it, it's like the bleakest <laughs> anecdote I could possibly muster. We were studying the Industrial Revolution, and we went to Sheffield to Richard Arkwright's cotton mills. As part as a field trip, it was a completely pointless. Like it added nothing to it. It didn't enhance our enjoyment or understanding of the subject. And you know, we were we were sort of just in Sheffield going to these things. Anyway, I, I remember me and my friends having a perfectly nice time. And on the way back, they said, you know, as a treat, we were going to stop in the Sheffield History of Popular Music, which I believe does not exist anymore. But it was this. Um, it's this kind of crazy museum that just had loads of pop music stuff in it. I, I'm not sure what happened to all the memorabilia, but there was a lot of it oh, there. That sounds great. Yeah, it was kind. Of, I, it was it was pretty amazing, and I don't know what happened to it. I know that it closed down, and I, I don't really know what the circumstances are around that. But they had loads of cool stuff in there, and there was just a listening post, and I was just playing albums on it, and I played Electric Ladyland, and I think. Probably like, you're, you know, when you're 14, your brain is just waiting for something that is, your mind is waiting for something that's going to open up the wider world to you. Mm. And it could sort of be anything, it could be a TV show, it could be a, you know, a comedy album or a comedy special or a movie or something. But for me, the thing that opened up my whole brain was listening to that album. Even though, you know, I did not become the first person from to hail from the state of Kerala in India to be fronting a blues rock band <laughs> as was my dream when I was 15 years old I um I think for even though I've ended up going into something completely different I think you can trace everything back to me listening to Electric in, in Sheffield in Sheffield yeah <laughs> for whatever reason I think you're sort of you at that age you're looking for something that's going to some piece of art or culture yeah. that's going to throw open the doors of the possibility of your life. And for me, it was, it was Jimi Hendrix and it was Crosstown Traffic. And so I started, I bought that album and then, um, and that was all I wanted for the next sort of like, because when I was a kid, you know, like my parents would just give me like 20 quid for my birthday and I would just spend it all on. And they, it was an interesting period because they, it was a sort of, it was just after they'd brought out the like singles, the, the albums on CD. They reissued all of them in the late 90s. And so it was quite a good time to get into Jimi Hendrix because all the albums yeah. were relatively cheap. And so I just bought everything. So I just bought Electric Ladyland, Are You Experienced, and then Axis, then Band of Gypsies. Um, and then I got the BBC sessions, nice. which uh, the BBC sessions was one of my favorite things. Yeah. The Hendrix BBC sessions album is absolutely incredible. Um, and I saw, I got my friend to, I mean, this is 
I don't know if you could timestamp a story any more than this, <laughs> apart from I went on a school field trip to Sheffield. Uh, I got my friend to tape off the telly on VHS, uh, the Monterey set. Um, because I think it must have been on, it must have been on a cable channel that I didn't have at home. It must have been on like film four or something. But um, yeah, so I, that was all I did. And then fro- I, I'm also a huge Dylan fan. And um, that all comes from Hendrix and that all comes mm. from All Along the Watchtower. You know, Dylan is a sort of name you kind of are, are familiar with. Yeah. And I think I knew Blowing in the Wind because we used to sing it at primary school like a hymn. <laughs> but um, I definitely hadn't really consciously listened to any Bob Dylan and it was because of the Hendrix all along the watchtower. Occasionally my mother will say, this is all Jimi Hendrix's fault. And what she means by this is (laughs) your entire life (laughs) to some extent. She, which is a difficult thing to draw because it's a difficult line to draw from electric Ladyland to doing stand up comedy. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but yes, it is to some extent, it is all Jimi Hendrix's fault. I would say. <laughs> so how old are you when you're, when you're doing this, when you're buying these albums? 14. 14. And I, I remember on my, um, on my 15th birthday, I made my mum and my uncle and aunt, they, they, I made them take me to see High Fidelity, the movie, which is a weird thing for a 15-year-old to want to do. <laughs> like, that is a weird thing for you to want to do. But yeah. I was. I just hoovered it all up, like all yeah. the Hendrix. If I like something, I can't. Um, I don't understand these people who are like, "Oh, I like that." Thi- oh yeah, I like. I saw that movie. I really loved it. And then I'm like, "But then, did you not then obsessively research every single thing that that person like?" Yeah. You understand. You you guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, it's just. I always find that really interesting where someone could be like, "Yeah, yeah, I listened to that album," and oh. I absolutely loved it, but then I didn't feel the need to obsessively yeah, read every single thing about it. that. So yeah, weird. I just enjoyed that on its own merit. Uh, whereas for me, it's like um, it, it's it's like how I am at an all-you-can-eat buffet. It's one of the reasons why I can't go to them <laughs> because I just I have no tap on my appetite. Yeah, if I like something and I need to get it, you just get drink it all, it all in, in <laughs> and then also like find out all the stuff and read all the background reading and if you're if it's Jimi Hendrix you're going right so Bob Dylan that's obviously one whole strand of his so mm. then who's Howling Wolf like the Killing Floor the, the footage of him playing Killing Floor at the Monterey Pop Festival I maintain is the most exciting single piece of any rock and roll performer ever like yeah. it's the most ex- because it's he's half in silhouette and you can see that he's wearing a sort of pink feather boa and he's got this sort of big curly kind of mop of, he's sort of curled it in a way that makes it look a bit like Dylan's hair. And he's doing something on the guitar and you can only just make out the silhouette of him. And it's the most exciting piece of footage you can possibly yeah. show anyone because you yeah. don't even really understand what he's doing. What's going on? Yeah, you yeah. can't even wrap your mind around what he's doing. And so obviously then you kind of go, right, so who's Howling Wolf? Who's Buddy Guy? Who's Muddy Waters? Who are all these, the, the, you know, who, who's the sort of people that go, who, who's everybody that's behind Jimi Hendrix? Yeah. What, uh, Eric Clapton, I'm pretty sure, is the guy that did Wonderful Tonight. What the fuck is, why is Jimi Hendrix talking about Eric Clapton? So then you, <laughs> then you kind of go down that, like, the cream route and all the kind of psychedelia that kind of comes off that he's kind of part of, you know, because when you watch the Monterey Festival, 
your immediate thing is like, okay, so who's Janis Joplin? And like the first time I remember hearing Otis Redding was on his Monterey album that, that yeah. they put out with the Jimmy album. Um, and so it kind of throws you off in a bunch of, it threw me off into a bunch of different directions. Yeah. I like that map. So yeah. like different people coming. Yeah. I would say if you're going to get into a musician, if you're going to, if you're going to see him as a gateway, Hendrix opens up a lot of different musical yeah. avenues. I mean, if you think about the, what's being poured into him, I mean, we're looking at um, Richie Havens, the albums that are just out in front of us. We're looking at yeah. Frank Zappa, Richie Havens, Handel's Messiah, Sounds of the Sitar by Ravi Shankar and Dylan. And so y you, you sort of get a sense of the variety of the mm. guy's taste and you can hear all of the echoes of all of those people through in his music. Um, and, but then if you then look at the people he then influenced and who consciously are coming after Hendrix, it leads you into Prince, obviously, who is his kind of uh, the closest thing you get like it feels like Prince takes the baton and then if you follow Prince the Hendrix Prince route you end up in rap music and Andre 3000 and you end up yeah. via Andre and Outkast in you know in the world of southern rap and if you listen to um, a song like Chunky Fire which is the last song on Equimini, on the, which is one of Outkast's masterpieces you're like mm. this is all Hendrix like yeah. it's feedback Blues rock so guitar. Many blues. Yeah, yeah, completely. And Influence. and then obviously Andre 3000's whole aesthetic, you know, the, the this the grand tradition of the African American dandy, which you run through Little Richard, Hendrix, Prince, Andre, and you get yeah. the and they one of the weird things that they all have in common is the thin mustache, like <laughs> <laughs> the flamboyant dress sense, and the very thin mustache. <laughs> and so it's like it, it, he's a really um it's a really good person to be your conduit into yeah. um, really like post-1945 popular music in America because mm -hmm. if you reach far back enough, he's really like, his playing is haunted by the ghosts of Robert Johnson. You know, he's, he's, that, he's part of that sort of blues tradition. And I'm really one of the, I think the Hendrix estate did such a cool job of doing all the remasters. And one of the most interesting things they did, I think was assemble just a blues album, which I think is just called blues. And it's just Hendrix yeah. playing the blues and covering things like, um, Manish boy, um, and born under a bad sign and really like connecting himself to that tradition. And, and one of my, my other favorite pieces of footage is him playing here, my train coming on a 12 string acoustic yeah. guitar. It's, it's one of the most extraordinary and beautiful and simple things. And when you see it played in full, you see a bit of him, this sort of man, because he, he messes up the opening and he's like, T don't waste the film. I'm I'm nervous. Like I'm really <laughs> nervous. Uh, uh, and you, yeah, he says, I, I was scared half to death. And then obviously he plays it and it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. But when you listen to that playing, that really is, you know, like connecting him to Robert Johnson and, and you know, making him a part of, of that tradition. But equally, he's as, as identifiable with someone like Frank Zappa. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just, a, it, it's, he, he was a, it, he turned out he was a great person for me to have stumbled on when I was 14 yeah. years old. But there were so many, just like that period of time you're talking about when you're 14, there's yeah. so many other things going on. Yeah. Like what, what, what's going on around 
that time that you weren't into? Was it like Oasis and stuff? Big? Yeah, it was. You know what? It was kind of that late period of Britpop. Yeah. Um, there's still some like there was there was good stuff going on that I just wasn't for whatever reason wasn't chiming with me at the time. Yeah. You know, when you go back now and you listen to. Um, you know, some of the stuff that was happening in rap music in the late 90s and early 2000s, when you listen to Radiohead, uh, which is something that I only got into much later, not, well, not much later, around sort of Kid A, Hail to the Thief. I think Hail to the Thief was probably the first Radiohead album I bought when it came out. Um, but that stuff was happening. But for whatever reason, it, I, I, it passed me by at the time. Yeah. The, the Britpop stuff, I sort of, um, I don't know, it just left me a bit cold. Like, I liked yeah. Blur after Britpop. That was the Blur stuff that, I, and that's still probably the Blur stuff that I've listened to now. Tender and 13 were the stuff that I, um, were the stuff that sort of interested me. Mm. But in the early 2000s, I definitely remember people playing me the Strokes first album. And I definitely remember thinking the beginning of New York City Cops was a shameless ripoff of the opening of Venus in Furs by the Velvet Underground. And I definitely remember somebody yeah. calling me a prick. <laughs> <laughs> I, de I definitely remember somebody saying, this is why no one likes you. But I, but I, I, I had two friends. I've spoken about these guys on stage before, um, but my friends, Ollie and Andy, were also into, we were all into sort of different versions of, older music and like Ollie really loved all the early 70s Stevie Wonder albums um, and Andy was really into Andy was uh, had a broader taste but was into things like he was listening to things like television and when we were you know when when we were sort of 14 15 right. um, and so he he we used to go around CD fairs in like South London in like Bromley and Croydon nice. to try and see what kind of cool and I remember Andy put the Velvet Underground and Nico in my hand and was like buy this album don't ask me yeah. any questions don't debate on it <laughs> were there we, many other 15 year olds going around the scene no there were not <laughs> no there were absolutely there were not and it was very confusing to people as to why I was going around but my, as I say my cousins were also Hendrix and uh, Prince yeah. fans so as soon as they found out that I liked music my, my, one of my cousins gave me his guitar because I had expressed an interest. He had a guitar that he said he wasn't using anymore, so he, which I still have. And he gave oh, me nice. his guitar because I wanted to learn the guitar. <clears throat> and his sister would bring me just stacks of Prince albums because she was like, oh, if you like Jimi Hendrix, I think you'll really love. Yeah, you'll definitely Yeah, like you'll this. definitely get this. And obviously with Hendrix, by the time I'd like, you know, because there isn't, just isn't that. I mean, there is. And you can eventually start digging into, once you start digging into all the bootlegs and the, rarities and the stuff that you can kind of find and, and i've got this recording of him on stage at a club in new york with audibly stoned out of his mind jim morrison <laughs> oh, okay. where they, and they cover tomorrow never knows and jim morrison just keeps screaming fuck your little girl in her little pussy and you're like this is alarming yeah like it all feels great very line. actionable <laughs> it feels very actionable that the jim morrison stuff and that but yeah i yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think if Jimi Hendrix farted into a microphone in 1968, there's a possibility I own it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but because, but so obviously because then with Prince, they just kept bringing me that sort New of stuff. stuff. And yeah, yeah and, and you know, I, I mm. was, 
we were these like odd kids that used to go and you know we were the only kids when dylan came around in 2002 uh at the london arena which is now i think a conference center it's in the docklands uh, me and ollie and andy were the only unaccompanied teenagers there every other every, every other person our age who was there was definitely bored and being dragged by their parents whereas we were the only ones who were like oh, i can't can't wait to see <laughs> is he bob? can't wait to see bob <laughs> really excited about seeing bob and i you know i went to see um my gig going is i was very for i went through a very fortunate streak where i saw uh dylan james brown Prince wow, cool. and Bowie in the space of about five years. And the only one I missed was because I was doing the, my bloody A-levels. I missed Nina Simone at the Albert Hall. Bloody A-levels. Yeah, it was like, it was the worst <laughs> possible timing. And it was one of those things where we were like, next, when she's back, oh. and obviously it was her last tour, but it was like, when she's back, oh, we have yeah. to go and see, you know, Nina yeah. Simone. When, you know, and it was, it, she was playing the Albert Hall as well. Like the idea of seeing Nina Simone at the Albert yeah. Hall is, you know, it would have been absolutely insane. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was really my teenage years. I don't really know what was wrong with me. And definitely. No, that's, that's cool. I def You'd be a hipster cool kid <laughs> going around CD fairs. Like that would be, that'd be a cool thing to do. My aunt who had probably just met my uncle in, in that sort of period was telling her son who's now sort of, it's probably now the age I was when I met her probably, 13, 14, she was like, when I first met Nish, all he wanted to talk to me about was Jimmy Hendrix. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, it's so weird. Like, all he, it was all he wanted to talk about was Jimmy Hendrix and, Bo and Bob Dylan. Like, those are the only two things. That's a nice, safe thing to be interested in as a yeah, teenager. Yeah, it feels though. like it. You know, it well, all not, feels, not in bad thing, it all feels very... Um, it's good. Yeah, it all feels very good and progressive and interesting. At the time, it was weird. <laughs> it was definitely a weird phase of my life. If you, it, it just, there wasn't, I don't know if it's different now, and I don't know whether maybe because of the way that popular culture has gone and the way that we, this sort of emphasis we put on, or the kind of cultural cachet that's now attached to somebody who knows a lot about old music, you know, like this sort of the legacy of like, hipsterism if it, it can be called any sort of cultural movement i wonder if now people would think oh that's cool that you're in but at the time definitely yeah. people were like this is strange yeah. <laughs> i don't really understand quite what's going on yeah y you know quite what's going on this there's, there's not a lot of people who were interested in uh talking to me about the composition of otis redding's recording band <laughs> <laughs> so, so what was your your first gig then if you're into that sort of stuff. My first gig was Bob Dylan, London Arena, Dylan. 2002. He was touring Love and Theft, um, which is an album he'd made with the, which is an album. It, good it's, album? It, yes, it is a really good. I mean, I really like it. It's, I think, um, it's probably like in his canon, most notorious for being released on September the 11th, 2001. Um, but, um, and because it's Dylan and because everyone is so obsessed with like, that he's some sort of weird you know, that he's some sort of prophet. There's a line in one of the songs that is sky full of fire, pain falling down. And so obviously okay. everyone's like, he's seen it coming and he's like, I think he's just an old man. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, but, that's, that's a pretty regular Dylan line. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's not pretty, that, yeah, that's it's wild. not like, yeah, it didn't, he didn't have flight numbers. Like it's like, <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, it was, yeah, he was touring Love and Theft. The reason it was particularly an interesting era to see him, I think, was because 
he had recorded that album with the touring band, which is which subsequently became a more common practice for right. him. Yeah. But um, at the time, he he had this sort of quite strong demarcation between who he was making albums with and and his the band that was just touring on the never ending tour with him. Um, yeah. And so it definitely felt you could feel that. And it was one of those things where you wanted sort of wanted to hear the new stuff because there was definitely an energy and an animation to the band performing. But he finished that night. And he's, he can't, he, I think because he's got arthritis, he doesn't really play the electric guitar on stage anymore. But he finished that night with a three electric guitar cover of All Along the Watchtower in the Hendrix arrangement, oh, Hendrix, as wow. he's done since the kind of, the tour with the band in the early, 73, 74, when he started touring with the band, that was when they changed the arrangement in tribute to Hendrix. Um, yeah. And uh, he... Yeah, and he. I read an interview with him where he said, you know, when we started playing that song in the seventies, when I was touring again, it felt more like yeah, it felt more like I was playing his song than yeah. he, than I was doing one of. He, oh, would have loved that. oh my, oh my God. God! Yeah, I mean, he was yeah, he was such a such a Dylan fan. I mean, he got that album on an early pressing before it had been released, and so he had already kind of he was he was working on. I think he also covered Drifter's Escape, which is from John Wesley Harding as well, on the BBC sessions. Like he was all, he was such a Dylan fan, and mm. um, yeah, it is one of the many things that's very sad about um, Hendrix's death is that he didn't live to ever see Dylan play yeah. all along the Watchtower in his, in the kind of electric guitar yeah. arrangement. But yeah, that was what Dylan closed the whole show on. That must have um, blown your It blew mind. my tiny, tiny mind, mind into pieces. <laughs> it was, um, yeah, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe what I was, what I was seeing. <laughs> it, it, it was, yeah, it just was the most, uh, it was just the most incredible way to, and also with, you know, with Dylan, I, I'm a huge Dylan fan and part of the reason I like him is because of this, but he will not play the songs in the way that people expect them. He refuses to do it. He sings them in a weird way. And he, I would say that night he was pretty disciplined and he did play songs that people knew and wanted to hear. But, you know, Visions of Johanna, he's doing something in, you know, it's a different, it feels like a completely different sound. And whereas all along the Watchtower, you know, it's very much like he's not mucking around with that song. Like it's one of the only Dylan songs And it's it's the Hendrix arrangement of it, but I think it's one of the only songs that he sort of considers finished in a weird way. And I think with the, all of the rest of his songs, he's still mucking around with them. I mean, there's some songs where he, you know, like Tangled Up in Blue for about ten years, he would play with different lyrics, you know. And he used to, he it felt feels like he his attitude is very much the recording is just one. You got you took a photograph of this yeah, song on yeah. a particular day, and for some reason. You expect me to recreate that photograph, but I can't be bothered to do that. But with all on the Watchtower, he you you get the sense that he's yeah. like that one we did finish. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I not me, but else. someone, yeah, someone finished it. <laughs> That's yeah. very very Hendrix, though. Like, yeah, he would play stuff differently every night. And yeah, his that's what he said. His the recording was the recording. Yeah, you. I think he said once, like you'll never know the band if you just listen to the recordings. Like, yeah, and a lot of people would be a bit disappointed. Which is mad to think about. They'd be disappointed going to see him because it wasn't what was on the records and yeah. was like just them jamming a lot of the time. Oh yeah, I mean if you think, so, but also like the, t- the time period we're talking about. You know, he arrives here in September '66 or something. Yeah. And he arrives here then, and by <clears> the time by Woodstock, if you think about the 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 sound, it's 
he's like a different musician. Yeah, know? it's like he's yeah. like a completely different he, the 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 sound and feel of the band. It's like, it feels a bit more feels a bit more like an almost like an almost like verging on like a sort of R and B, almost like soul sound at yeah. points. You know, a song like Message to Love like feels almost more like he's you know because there's all there's always that sort of it's sort of quite a depressing conversation in some ways but like what was he going to do next like would he have gone because yeah. he could have gone down the sort of psychedelic route which then evolved into progressive rock and he would have could probably you know he'd have sat quite comfortably on that in that tradition and something like um even with his preoccupation with science fiction but something like 1983 a merman i should tend to be feels like he's angling at that sort of direction but then uh, rainy day dream away is like a is like a blues jam mm. and also he was and on top of everything there's this whole like a, a collaboration being mooted between him and miles davis yeah. and you definitely hear his and i mean it's not this isn't me being particularly insightful this is something that miles davis has literally said but like <laughs> it feel hendrix on bitches brew mm. and you feel the sound of the hendrix records coming through on an album like that yeah so would he have done something in jazz would he have done something in you know, would he have moved almost all towards like a sort of R and B soul sound? Because I feel that sound comes through most clearly on um, "Cry of Love." That then is it first "Rays of the New Rising Sun," the the kind of the last batch of recordings. Which he wrote the lyrics. Oh, really? One of the mm. songs that we know he was working on. Oh wow! Oh, that's yeah. cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he th- that's that album feels like. He's moving in a sort of R and B, R and B direction, but he could easily, as easily, have gone in sort of progressive rock. He could have done a folk album, you know. <laughs> I, there's no, there's no, there didn't seem to be a ceiling to his talent or his interest, yeah. which I think is very. Well, I think it, it would have been quite quite difficult to be a Hendrix fan at the time. Like it's quite looking back, we're like, oh yeah, that's amazing, that's amazing, that's amazing, but. Like you say, it changed so rapidly. Yeah, from like this to this to this. That at the time, you can understand maybe why people would have found it slightly difficult going from. It would have been. It would have felt. You know, it's like um, it's like getting the bends, not the Radiohead <laughs> album. But it's just you. You come up to. It feels almost like you're coming yeah, coming up too yeah. quickly from being underwater. You know, it's the <clears throat> speed, the the sort of gap between also how quickly he's learning i think that's what's most incredible to me if you listen to something like are you experienced through access boulders love into electric ladyland the way he's using the studio the the way that he's building um a guitar pipe like castles made of sand or little wing with the overdubs and the kind of interplays between his own guitar parts it's pretty extraordinary and then by the time you get to electric ladyland he's kind of he's kind of throwing out these like full blown symphonies and it's a sort of interesting mixture of something that's both very, very controlled. I guess the perfect illustration is the two voodoo child because, you know, slight return is a very controlled blues rock. I mean, that's almost like, that's the sort of, if you want to explain to somebody what blues rock Mm -hmm. as a genre is, it's that song, you know, and the the wah wah pedal and it's all very, and then the 15 minute spaced out blues jam which just suddenly feels, which still, he still like carries, it still feels dangerous, that out recording. It's so interesting listening to him and it still feels yeah. menacing. Like his voice still feels menacing. <laughs> it's so good that that's on there though. Oh, the amazing. Like, so yeah, that that totally. It's part of it. 
Yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible. I mean, I experienced feels like somebody who has an interest in psychedelia and mm. Dylan and has come just off the Chitlin circuit. Like you pull that guy off the Chitlin circuit yeah. and throw him into swinging London. Whereas by Electric Ladyland, I mean, I love all of the albums and uh, you, sometimes I think I experience might even be my favorite of all of them, but it's, um, it's definitely somebody who's like soaking up everything that's around him. Whereas it feels like by Electric Ladyland, he's trying to kick into whatever the next, like yeah. he's pushing yeah, at whatever the next thing is going to be. And he's, he's, yeah, he's definitely his, his own genre. And then also, I mean, probably the thing that I listen to of his most regularly now is Band of Gypsies. Because the guitar playing on Band of Gypsies is, I mean, it's unreal. And also because it, it, it's, it's relatively sort of, even in terms of the effects pedals, they're quite minimal. And he's, you kind of can just hear him play. And, it, you know, just hearing him stretch out and play is like, is pretty extraordinary and he's like dipping into jazz and um mm. yeah it's a he's such a um there's a lot going on yeah the, i mean those dick cavett tapes are that, that's a real like that's a real treasure trove that, yeah super interesting and he, he looked i was watching the other day he looked fucking knackered in one of them yeah. he looked so tired and it's like god what are you doing? Why are you making this? Why are you making this guy do this? Like you know, it's it, he looks so tired. It, it, I think things are just um, you know we're so used to people who becoming successful in music and it buying them time. You know, like we're more and more used to now artists having like disappearing for a year yeah, to make yeah, an album. Yeah, you know, whereas he, you know, those guys were like it was a production line. Yeah, they write were, the album. Exactly, they're working. Called the album. Yeah. Taught while you're touring start writing the next album and and it and it just sort of you know it's like uh, but it affected them all in you know like the kind of that you know john lennon's whole like mid 60s period is a kind of extended nervous breakdown you know like dylan had to pretend to have a well yeah did have a motorcycle crash but he basically exaggerated just have some time off yeah just have just to stop and just to sort of yeah you know get some space from it and hendrix I, i mean you know it's a it's difficult to speculate on these things, but you know, somebody who's taking barbiturates to sleep is somebody who is typically, you, you're not like, it's not because you've got your feet up that you're overdosing on barbiturates, you know, yeah, like this is yeah. a guy who's like at the end of his working his last nerve and is obviously yeah. like wired on any number of things and is trying to like b- control his moods chemically. Yeah, um, but it was, it was, it's, it's amazing to me that that was just the sort of, that was just a sort of culture. Oh yeah, then of just in the sixties of just like piled like just and the touring is just. It. You look at the record of, his, I mean, of touring. It's like did two shows this night, two yeah. shows this night. It's just relentless. And just every you know every six months it reminds me of um, it just reminds me of Chris Rock's material about Tupac. How just every two years Tupac releases a new album with more clues about who killed him. But it <laughs> just it does feel like every couple of years we like. And live in Miami. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, how many more? How much? Yeah. Yeah. How much more of this stuff is there realistically? They could have done in that the, time. Yeah. Like, he, well, that he has done. Yeah. Like, even when, it's strange. We all, we all engage in these discussions about hypotheticals, but it feels like we're still figuring out. We're still mm. like finding recordings of stuff yeah, that yeah. he did and, you know. Crazy. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, I, it's one of those things where, he, it's not something that I 
I really hate when people romanticize the idea of those kind of early deaths because all I think about is like all the good stuff that we we didn't yeah. you know we didn't get um and all the and especially for somebody like Hendrix who was was a rock star and an icon and this kind of you know this sort of pillar of cool and sexual allure and was all of this stuff but first and foremost was a musician mm. who would have just continued evolving as a musician yeah y- y- you know um with the best will in the world oasis are not discovering new depths of hitherto unrevealed musicianship <laughs> <laughs> you know but with but with hendrix you're looking at him and going you know like if you listen to buddy guy play now buddy guy is still an unbelievable you know it's he, he he was well into his you know seventies and playing amazingly and had learned new stuff and yeah the the tradition of blues guitar players is that they just keep playing and keep learning you know BB yeah, King yeah, yeah. they they, they just keep playing and keep learning and they die on stage <laughs> yeah t- totally and um, but they keep uh, they keep evolving like one of the most amazing things. Mm is Buddy Guy turning up in Shine a Light, which is Scorsese's Rolling Stones oh, concert yeah. documentary. And um, it's like really, it's a good movie. And it's nice to see the Stones and they're doing what they do. And, you know, Keith Richards is very magnetic and Jagger sort of is like, it's like that thing where like in his 40s and 50s, it was a bit embarrassing that he was still trying to be Mick Jagger. Yeah, and now yeah, it's yeah, totally yeah. heroic. I saw them at Glastonbury in 2013. Yeah, and I was just like, this is heroic. Yeah. The, what's powering yeah, you? What's, like, what is inside what is, you? <laughs> you're in, Mick Jagger is in better shape yeah. than I am now. Yeah. Like, you know, it's mind-blowing to me. I think and, Iggy Pop's the same as well. Like, yeah. what's going through it? Yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, I don't do? even know. I mean, why? I don't know why we spent ages trying to build a COVID vaccine. Somebody should just take Iggy Pop. Like, <laughs> yeah. like Iggy Pop is like Wolverine or something. Like, he's, you know... I, if he, he can withstand what he's put his body. It's the same thing with Keith Richards. Like if those yeah. guys could stand what they put their bodies through in the 60s. But yeah, it was it, it was amazing seeing the Stones. And like every time they come back, it feels more yeah. heroic to me. And weirdly, did you hear the song that they recorded in lockdown? Oh, yeah. It's the best song in about 30 years. <laughs> it's my favourite Rolling Stones song. I, I mean, I can't like, I, I quite like She Was Hot. But other than that, I'm thinking about like bits of goat's head soup. Like it, it, it really is, it's, you know, it's pretty incredible. Um, <laughs> it's called quite- Living in a Ghost Town. And it's just yeah. like somehow the like experience <coughs> of locking them down has popped them back into the kind of, they're like sticky fingers. And also it's about like being locked down so you can't bang. And you're like Mick Jagger. <laughs> How are you still thinking about boning? Um, but there's a bit in that movie where Buddy Guy pops on and does Champagne and Reefer, and it's like heart-stoppingly brilliant. It is, the sound of his voice is incredible. The mm. guitar is incredible. And so when I think about Hendrix, I just think about, I don't really think about the sort of tearaway rock star who embodied the some spurious notion that you should you do all your best work in your early twenties and you live fast and you die young. I think more about the old bluesman we were sort of robbed of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, what an incredible legacy. I mean, he did more than most of us will do in whole lifetimes in three and a half years. Like what, what an incredible, what an incredible thing to have like to think about him working for three and a half years and 
producing. Yeah, and producing. And we, you know, we're all, you know, we're all talking about it. Like three people <laughs> who were born l- long after he died are still, uh, you know, are still here. <laughs> still in, his, here. in his room. With- yeah, yeah. I've <laughs> come back. Like I've come on some like pilgrimage. <laughs> To see, like, to see his, you know, to see his room. Like, what an incredible, I mean, that's, like, that's an extraordinary uh, legacy yeah. for a person to leave. <laughs> so, yeah, how, how did you go then from seeing Bob Dylan to then actually performing yourself? Like, were you an aspiring musician that then... No, I was a terrible you... guitar player. I was and am a terrible guitar player. Um, the, who... uh, there is a, you have done one song. I've done, yes, the, I have, yeah. The, so I the, have performed music song. infrequently, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, I, we wrote a song, I was doing a Taskmaster, which is a, a great British comedy show. Yeah. And I, um, it's we a had to song. write a song. It's, lo- it's lovely. It's a good song. It's uh, lyrics by Mark Watson, music by Nish Kumar. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a very sort of, um, it's, um, listen, I, I'm inspired by, all the greats and <laughs> all the greats uh, plagiarize that song, and so yeah. the majority, the uh, the chorus to that song uh, is just a transposition of "Dancing in the Dark." Yeah, <laughs> it's just "Dancing in the Dark." <laughs> it, it's it's literally just "Dancing in the Dark." Well, I we, learned from the best, yeah. aka Bob Dylan. And <laughs> if there's one thing Bob Dylan teaches you, it's that you've got to steal as much as you possibly can. Um, but yeah, so I have performed, and then I did a song on. Um, Adam Buxton's podcast. Oh, okay. it was, we recorded what did, what did it. What did you do? Like, was it, it was maybe a year and a half after Bowie died. I was Buxton say, was, was it, like, was yeah, Buxton yeah. called me to do the podcast and he was like, how would you feel about bringing your guitar and uh, you and me singing a Bowie song? And I was like, I think I feel pretty good about that, actually. <laughs> like, I don't know why, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm quite sparing in my uh, performances for the good of the public. But, yeah. um, uh, all through the while, I was sort of interested in uh, comedy. I was a massive Simpsons fan um, when I was a kid. And I, uh, yeah, and so, you know, I was a huge Simpsons fan. And it's interesting because it, there's then, uh, the first I, I ever heard of Frank Zappa was in a documentary about the Simpsons when Matt Groening was talking about how his, uh, the Freak Out is one of his favourite albums and Absolutely Free. Uh, Absolutely Free is Matt Groening's favourite album of all time. Oh, right. Okay. Um, and so, there is this kind of circular thing of that, the culture that emanates out from that period. But he, um, I was a big Simpsons fan. I was a massive Chris Rock fan. I think Hendrix appears in The Simpsons. There's an episode with him in, in Heaven. I think yeah. Hendrix appears in Heaven. And yeah. also there is the infamous line when Homer Simpson says, uh, he's, it's when he's performing as part of the Lollapalooza show when people are fought, firing cannonballs into his gut. And he says, um, I'm going to... Um, <laughs> I'm going to heaven. Got any messages for Hendrix? And the and the doctor says yes. Please tell him to pick up his dog. <laughs> it just it just pans down to this like old dog with a head like Hendrix like headband. And and also there's a scene in it where Homer's trying to buy a vibrating chair. He wants to buy a sofa chair, and uh, the uh, he can't afford it. He ends up getting the chair. His brother gets him the chair. It's not important. But before when he first sits in the chair, he loves it. Marge says, we've got to go. And he's like, let me try this once again. And he, before he presses the button, he says, excuse me while I kiss the sky. Like that. Nice. <laughs> There's another, there are other. There's so many good references in, in The Simpsons though. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's just littered. It's, with... full, it's full of that. It's, yeah. It was a real sponge for pop culture. But yeah, so I liked, I loved The Simpsons. 
I love Goodness Gracious Me. I went to see them live. Th- that's another. Yeah. Like there's a few sort of Hendrix is actually like Hendrix, Goodness Gracious Me, Bigger and Blacker, which is a Chris Rock HBO special. Um, and the Simpsons are all the things that like um, made me kind of want to sort of do something nebulous in performance or cult, like the yeah. arts or something. Um, and um, I kind of was like, when I was at university, I'd, I kind of had started thinking about how to do stand up because also like I, I just really was fascinated by stand up. Um, and um, so was Chris I, Rock, your big sort of stand up. Yeah. Chris Rock yeah. was like the first um, stand up special I saw. Yeah. And then when I was about 17, 18, I used to, again, this is once I get into something. I, I saw Ross Noble three times uh, in... Uh, sorry, I saw Ross Noble four times in three years. So I actually saw him once when I was staying with my uncle in Australia. Oh, I actually wow. went to see him on the same tour twice, one in both hemispheres. No. <laughs> <laughs> on, on, as part of the same tour. Have you ever been able to tell him that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I've told him that I've st- I saw him twice in... Once in Australia, I, I definitely said that I'd seen him a few times. Yeah. He, um, but yeah, so I used to go and watch Ross Noble in the West End all the time. Oh, and then nice. um, when I, from, the, from when I was about 17, I used to start getting my cousin used to sneak me into comedy clubs that were 18 and over. And yeah. they definitely knew, like I didn't look 18 until I was 25. But, <laughs> and, then, and then after I was 25, I looked 40. So I really missed out <laughs> appearance wise on like a useful period of my life. Um, but um, it, it, I used to sneak in and watch stand up, and I just um, I was just sort of fascinated by yeah. stand up, and I used to do stuff at school that would involve me getting up, and it, I liked being funny in front of crowds of people, and I was, you know, I mean, this is like plumbing the depths of my school uncoolness, but I used to be in the debating club at <laughs> nice. school, and. You know, it's all really adding up to a real late loss of virginity. Like when you reassemble all the evidence, you're like, I don't. In a way, it's a miracle I ever lost my virginity at all. But, um, but yeah, I was in this school debating club, and I liked telling jokes. Really, like I liked sort of. I mean, if you tell, so did you use the debating club as a vehicle? Yeah, to- and if you if you say that <laughs> nice. to my friend, the comedian and occasional musician James Acaster would say that that makes sense of my entire career and output. That if you know that I was somebody who made funny, de- he said, all your fucking stand up is, is a funny debate. <laughs> so it makes, it makes total sense. Yeah, no, it's de- he definitely yeah. means it as an insult. You can extrapolate a compliment out of it if you want to, but he definitely means it negatively. Um, but, um, but yeah, so it was, um, it was around that sort of late teenage period that I started thinking about it. And then when I was at university, I joined a sketch group, went to Edinburgh, okay. Um, I, um, and then we started, I started doing stand up because my friends started a stand up night when we were all at college. And so probably did my first stand up gig when I was 21, okay. 21, yeah, 21, 22. And you, yeah. you'd done sketch comedy before that. Yeah. At university, it all happened at university. It all happened oh, okay. within the space of two years. So I started in 2005, I joined the sketch group. We went to Edinburgh in t- 2006. Uh, this, uh, that would be in August. By October of that same year, I started doing stand up, and then um, 
after I graduated, I kind of moved home and sort of ummed and ahed about it a little bit because, yeah. you know, it's an embarrassing thing to say to people, you know, like I think at least I think people are more indulgent. If you say, oh, I don't want to be a rock star. People are like, yeah, we all kind of want to be rock stars. We kind of get it. Whereas if you say to people, I want to be a comedian, they're like, who do you think you are? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> who do you, you've never made me laugh once yeah. in my goddamn uh, Tell me life. a joke. Yeah, I exactly. Tell the, me a joke. Yeah. yeah. Tell me a god. All you ever do is go on about Jimi Hendrix. What are you going? Um, yeah, and so then I've kind of been doing that pretty much, uh, pretty much ever since. It's yeah, it's a strange old, it's a strange old thing. But I, for some reason, it's all bound up in my mind. Like Chris Rock, goodness gracious me, The Simpsons, yeah. and Jimi Hendrix are all somehow like, and Dylan connected. are all somehow like connected in my mind. Yeah, um, yeah, because I think when something impacts you at that age, it makes an impression that forms a cornerstone of who you are as a person. Definitely. And so I don't think you can, re you don't really like, um, like Lady Bird is one of my favorite films that came out the last couple of years. And there's a bit in it. Oh where, yeah. So sure. Yeah. So sure. Yeah. There's a bit in it where they're singing Dave Matthews band and they could easily have picked a cooler band. <laughs> it would be massively difficult. <laughs> you could, they could easily have picked a cooler band, but the, one of the reasons I like it is you see the impact that it's having on those people and you see the impression that it's making and clearly it's what made that impression on Greta Gerwig at that age yeah and so she was like true to that I think yeah. the stuff that hits you at that age it hits you in a different way yeah well, I suppose like Dylan and Hendrix like we said are sort of relentless performers yeah and that's obviously took a big toll on Hendrix it takes a toll on anyone but what do yeah. you how do you sort of feel about the expectation to keep performing and, you know, to keep having like a of, fan base who just want, you know, to. Yeah. I mean, I kind of, um, I guess I think it's all still relatively exciting for me. Like mm. I feel like the last tour that I did, <laughs> uh, David O'Doherty, who's also a big fan of a lot of the bands that we've mentioned was really fascinated with my last tour, because if you look at it, I started playing some of the venues that like Dylan played in the mid sixties, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like the De Montfort Hall in Leicester. <laughs> it's like, he was really obsessed with that. I think it's all still relatively new to me. Like the idea of like a theater full of people coming out to see me is still something that I, uh, the novelty of it hasn't worn off. And it's still something yeah. that I find, um, that I find exciting and still, uh, you know, it's still too much of a novelty for me to be jaded by it, I think, yeah. in some ways. I mean, listen, I can see how it could wear you down and could really sort of affect you negatively. But, uh, but then I also look at Dylan and I see, that, you know, the guy's, it's a pandemic that's stopping him from being on tour. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's, uh, he's 79, I think, Dylan is. That is you incredible, know, isn't it? You know, like... Yeah, he, like it's kind of feels morbid to talk about, but like he's going to die on the road. Like he's, mm. and it, I can't, I get it. Like I kind of yeah, get yeah, that, yeah. that I, I understand that lifestyle and I can see how I've heard him talk about stuff and say things like it's the road is the only thing that makes sense to me. Like it's the thing that makes the most being yeah. on tour is the thing that makes most sense to me. <laughs> and I can see how you would end up uh, going down that road. But you know, comedians live a very different, as much as we might, occasionally be erroneously tarred as the new rock and roll let me tell you <laughs> we live in a very different touring lifestyle you know it's it's not all, it's, not all it's it's no groupies and no class a drugs 
Yeah, it's like um, support act and tour manager and the three of us have a bottle of wine and go to bed. <laughs> It's pretty so good it to me. I think it doesn't take its toll <laughs> <laughs> in quite in quite the same way. But I think that you know after say you know what's been your like, worst gig like after that are you like I, I don't want to do this or like I, you know I don't. No, I, I think you. This. I think you. I think there are times where it's difficult to keep going, but that's more in the. I found that in the early stages, you know, wh mm. when you would often. Um, you know, you could go weeks without having a good gig when you're first starting out, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, in retrospect, obviously everybody goes, you know, you were just learning your craft and this, that and the other. But at the time, it feels like you're fucking Lewin Davis. Like, that's what it feels like for years on end. That Coen Brothers movie about the relentlessly unsuccessful folk musician. Oh, okay. And it's, uh, that film feels like your life for years yeah. on end, you know? And, um, is that years, would you say? It took it me years. Yeah. I was, st I still, I was making no money off comedy. So I started uh, I, yeah. I, in like 2007, 2008. And I still had a job until 2012. I started a full-time job. And then I had, and then I went, and then I did a part-time job for a bit after that. Yeah. Um, so it, it took years, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, I, I, you know, some things are like that, but I think comedy particularly takes that amount of time. You know, there's actually very few uh, people you think might be overnight successes in comedy have actually been going for a lot longer than you might, than you might anticipate. But, you know, even someone like Hendrix was, it was like working the Chitlin circuit yeah. for years and like opening yeah. up for like Ike Turner and little Richard. And, mm -hmm. you know, th there's that incredible footage of him playing the earliest recorded footage, video footage of him, is playing backup for the Isley Brothers. Yeah. And that, you know, he's got like his hair's all combed. He looks like Marge Simpson. Like it's all sort of combed <laughs> and like controlled upwards. So the, I think you can always take heart from people that there's a lot more. Um, yeah. There's a lot more sort of that's gone under the surface um, than, you know, than but, you would exist. But like certainly like, and but to be honest, like, I think it particularly feel like a Dylan fan. <laughs> Something about being booed that is like you like. Oh yeah, I'm just this is this bit of my career now. Like I, yeah, I, I yeah. we're coming up for a year, but I had this like mad thing where I, somebody threw a bread roll at me and like oh, yes, I got like I kicked off stage and it was booed at some yeah. charity event. But the first thing there were loads of uh, reporters trying to get a statement out of me, and I just didn't want to talk to them. And the only thing I did was put tweet a little clip of Dylan <laughs> talking going don't boo me I can take it man <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah nice to equate yourself to Bob Dylan yeah I know I think because, and part of the reason I did it was I knew like the same people yeah, that yeah. were already furious with me but like how dare you yeah. compare yourself to Bob Dylan <laughs> how dare you <laughs> no I like that yeah. <laughs> That's the risk, isn't it, of performing? Is like people who you're performing to might, yeah. might hate it. Yeah, totally. And they might not like what you're doing, no matter how good you are. Yeah, completely. Like, things it, can, it can happen and go wrong. Yeah, things can go wrong. Things can go bad. That's the sort of risk of. There's a tremendous risk with any live performance that the whole thing could sort of, um, you know, could sort of implode on itself. Yeah. Um, at, at, at any given time, and I mean. I think comedy is particularly exposed for that because you can't even sort of, you know, there's a bit in Band of Gypsies where one of his strings breaks 
and yeah. just you know Billy Cox and Buddy Mars just keep playing <laughs> then he comes back on <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if I break a string whatever that translates into <laughs> it's not you know there's no bass player or drummer who can just keep <laughs> fill for time <laughs> that would be good to yeah. have though if that, that's a good idea get a band. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> get a yeah. full touring band <laughs> is that a thing you sort of as soon as you come out like does the crowd do you get a sense of whether that might happen from the crowd quite quickly? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes you can, like, not so much when you're touring and doing your own shows, because like, yeah. by, by the time you're doing that, the people have, like, really invested. They want it to go well, yes. you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas when you're playing clubs, when you come up through comedy clubs, it, 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 you know, sometimes you walk on stage and you can just smell it in the air. Like, yeah. the vibe is just there. Like, it's febrile. Yeah. And that's sort of one of the reasons why club comedy is exciting. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, <clears throat> you know, like you can hear sonically the difference between like Richard Pryor's later albums are in theatres, you know, something like Wanted is in a theatre, but the uh, first three or four albums are in nightclubs and you can just hear like glasses breaking yeah, and yeah. people just like, you know, like yelling in the background and people not really knowing what's going on and people like, you know, wait staff moving around and people just sort of randomly shouting. Yeah, no, that's things. Richard Pryor. Yeah. 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 And, but the, and also those are the albums. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. it, it wasn't like a chance recording. Those yeah. are the, and you can hear the diff, there's a different sound to a crowd in a nightclub versus a, a crowd in, yes. come to a theater. And when you do, you know, do comedy in a club, it can go, you have to be prepared occasionally for it to be the bit in the Blues Brothers when they have to play Rawhide at the Cowboy Bar. Like, that's a lot of, <laughs> like, one every three gigs when yeah. you start out and when you're doing weekend gigs. It's Friday and Saturday night. It's, you know, and it's also, yeah. like, from the limited type stage time I've spent in the States, it, is a, it does feel a little bit different. Like, even in comedy clubs, it was a tiny, like, in the States, the comedy clubs have to have a two drink minimum. Like they have to tell people you need to drink two yeah. drinks. Whereas in this country, it's like, you've had 17 pints. <laughs> you, you must Please stop. come in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Please come in. You've had 17 pints and you seem livid. <laughs> come on in. Like it's, yeah, it, it, it's definitely, um, it's like yeah. an edgier experience. I, but I that's watched, exciting. I watched, um, Dave Chappelle do a theatre, like yeah. American theatre. And then I watched uh, him do a, a club in like the UK. Yeah. And it, like the, the difference, although like say you can only really hear it yeah. in the audio, but it's like, it's so obvious. Yeah. Like, that palpable sense of. Yeah. The American audience really wants you to succeed a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah. I feel a UK audience is a bit like, ah, we sort of want to see you crash. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's sort of why we've come. I would say like by the time people are paying like, 20 and 30 quid for tickets and especially when you're going to see some of the like big dogs and when the yeah. americans come here particularly because i think especially if they're coming for one or two nights you know they want to make it worth their while financially you can be paying like 50 60 quid a ticket yeah and by then you know the behavior of the audience is a little bit like okay let's watch this we've paid to see yeah. this thing we need to laugh but when you're like <laughs> you know like friday saturday night comedy club anything can happen it's, yeah. you know, you walk on stage, you're fucking taking your life in your own hands. Like, it's like, <laughs> you know, absolutely anything can happen. Do you um, think that's something you have to sort of come through as a comedian? Yeah, I kind of think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, it, I can't tell 
everybody's very good at living their experience and then hastily writing it up as a roadmap for everybody else. Yeah. But it, I, I, that's the way that I came through. And I think it served me well uh, in future. I mean, I don't know whether it's necessary. I don't know what value you get from like having to like harangue drunks um, yeah. into like into listening to you. But um, I think the danger is that you sort of go too far down the road of you have to try and wrestle them round to your point of view. Yeah. And you have to do that by getting their attention. What you mustn't do is go too far down a road of just giving them what they want. Like there is a yeah. way that you can give an audience like that what they want. And it can mean that you're not doing something. And I think you can, if that's what you want to do, fine. But if that's not what you want to do, you can find yourself trapped and yeah. giving the audience something that they want to hear, but you don't necessarily want to give mm. them anymore. And that can be kind of an empty <clears throat> experience. You can see it in like the Lulu show, you know, there's like stuff like that where he's like, he's clearly bored. Yeah. He's, he's clearly bored with playing it. You know, he's really not been playing it that long though. No, but that's I what, like, but I, guess that's, that's, I guess that's like the mark of someone yeah. like that where you're like the guys, he's just in a time zone. He's li he's getting bored of things at twice the speed of other normal human beings. Yeah, like because, it's crazy. You know, it's like by like 1968 or 69, he's already bored of stuff he was playing in 1967. Like it's yeah. insane. And you look like, at bands like Rolling Stones, they're still playing their hits that are like... Yeah, it's incredible. 40 years old now. Yeah. A lot older. I mean, if you went to see a band now, you would ex you, you'd be surprised if they didn't play something from two years ago, you know, yeah. whereas like Hendrix was sort of... Mm. I mean, I think there's there's often like a token foxy lady yeah. that gets thrown in, and 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 often a token hey Joe because I think he does play both of those at Woodstock. I think yeah. I can't remember what's on the Isle of Wight set, but I mean that's 1970. But yeah, it's it does seem like people like that experience life at four times the speed of the rest mm. of us, like us mere mortals. Yeah, but I, I think uh, if you look at what he was first, who he was paired with at first, like his first tour in the UK is with Engelbert Humperdinck yeah and the like the Walker Brothers it's like oh and this is crazy went, and then he went to the, one of their first gigs was opening for Johnny Halliday yeah he was like a French yeah. crooner yeah. and then and then there's the monkeys debacle yeah. like yeah. you know because obviously when you see them <coughs> it's just difficult when you think about the 60s you sort of what we associate it in our minds is something like Monterey where you're like yeah it's Ravi Shankar Janis Joplin makes sense. Um, the Who, Jimi Hendrix, you know, it's all this like Otis Redding, like it's all this kind of yeah. music. But actually, you realise that most of the sixties is how much Gosh. is that doggy in the window? And like, yeah, and like yeah. a lot of it is like it's sort of like novelty <laughs> pop records, and it, yeah, and so yeah, it's like it is a really interesting thing to think about this in context of being the counterculture and being yeah something that was like closer to the avant-garde mm. rather than, you know, cause now these things become, these people become museum pieces, yeah. you know, Dylan and Hendrix are all these people who sort of, you know, can sort of be, you can, they can, their reputations could be allowed to be ossified, but it's when you actually go back and listen to the albums, that's the actual yeah. music itself yeah. is still feels on the edge of something. And it still feels fresh and interesting and exciting. And, mm. you know, I was listening to Axis on the way over here and just thinking, if this came out today, you'd be like, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. 
this is this is very cool you know you, this is you there'd be you know he'd um thundercat i'd be playing bass on it like it'd be like it, it, it feels like oh yeah he'd be like could easily yeah yeah, yeah it feels now, like it? yeah yeah you know it feels like he'd be like you know contributing guitar parts to 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 a Kendrick Lamar album like it sort of feels like yeah. you know it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's not retro no that's right it yeah sounds like yeah the 60s if you have to be a band going and playing yeah 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 I mean I'm not no shade on them I love Credence but if you listen to Credence you're like this is the sound this is yeah, yeah. you know this feels <laughs> like yeah 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 this is a Vietnam this is Fortunate Son it's a Vietnam <laughs> montage so Basically, it's a quote or a fact. Yeah. And it's either Handel or Hendrix. Sure. And you've got to say which one. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> I did think I did see your heaven before me and the great God himself. That's a pretty well-selected quote because I really feel like that could have been all of them. I mean, I'm going to guess at Handel. I'm going to guess at Handel. Okay. Uh, who really enjoyed tidying their room? I'm going to say Hendrix because whenever you see photos of him in situ, he always looks, it always looks very orderly. Who threatened to throw a singer out of a window? <laughs> I'm going to guess at Handel. Uh, quote, the moment I don't have anything more to give musically, that's when I won't be found on this planet. Hendrix. And the quote, most people believe that to be a good musician, one has to suffer. I don't believe this. Handel. Solid four out of five. Last one. Was Hendrix? Incorrect. Yes, it was. Wow. So H- Hendrix, from being in the army, oh, absolutely right. loved yeah, tidying right. his room. Yeah, of course. Keeping it yeah. tidy anyway. Handel, I reckon his servant did that. I mean, his room was probably tidy, but yeah, yeah. I don't think he did it much. It doesn't feel like... I, I don't think he had much to do with it. It's hard to imagine somebody who we like, whose friends were like, this guy's like, just loves eating food. Or, like, yeah, it's hard yeah, to yeah. connect that. Like Handel... <laughs> Sounds more like me than I'd be cared to, than I'd care to be comfortable with. Handel did try to throw a, wing, a singer out of a window. That feels like something yeah. that I didn't really have any doubt about that one. Yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. know why. <laughs> <laughs> that, that feels like a real like 18th century anecdote. Yeah. He had gout, he threatened to throw a singer out of a window. You know? Come on, it was, it was 18th, 18th century. century stuff. We were all doing yeah, it. Yeah, that's all, that's all we were doing. <laughs> yeah, well done. Five. Well, I've, Solid. well, I feel, you know, this has really justified a lot of the life choices I've made. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thanks so much for coming. My, my absolute pleasure. This really was, nice uh, to speak with you. Well, this has been an absolute treat. Thanks very much for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Hanlon Hendricks in London, in partnership with Art Fund. 